The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Matt Wallert, and he is a, a former director at Microsoft Ventures, has done a number of startups, but his background is really in behavioral psychology, which makes for an interesting and eclectic mix. Regular listeners know of my interest in behavioral psychology, so this is right in my sweet spot. We actually did not get to talk about how we met. I go to lots of conferences as a speaker, and so I'm always terribly reluctant to go as an attendee. It's sort of once you've seen behind the curtain, it's like, oh, now I know how the magic is done. It ruins the, you know, it ruins the the special effects once you know how the. You mean he's really not sawing a woman in half? It ruins the show for you. But on occasion, I'll go to um, some a specific conference where there's a few people I want to see or a specific individual, and it was in the TIA Cref building conference facility, which is on like 3rd and 51st. It's on the 30th floor. It's a really interesting facility, having a conference center, not in the basement, but in the sky, surrounded by buildings. And I was there to see somebody else, and Matt, I, either Matt was right before or right after the person I had come to see, and he just takes the stage and you know, chews up the scenery, destroys the place. And it was really a fascinating concept, a fascinating speech about here's what behavioral psychology is and why aren't we applying this in the real world? We know this works. We know we can affect people's behavior and have them either make better decisions or end up doing things that brings them more satisfaction, more happiness. At a corporate level, if you're selling widgets, you don't want people just to buy your widgets. You want them to buy your widgets and have a higher level of satisfaction and become a repeat customer. And behavior uh, and psychology can really lead uh, companies to finding that right mix that really generates not just sales, but sales with happy customers and happy customers become repeat buyers. And I, I thought it was so obvious and so ridiculously wait, we're not doing this? And you stop and think about it, and suddenly it's, wow, we're not doing this. You're, you you look at all the things in the news recently about some horribly embarrassing uh, corporate behavior, and it's pretty clear that most of these companies could desperately use a chief behavioral officer, and they don't have one. And so I thought his conversation was so interesting I said, hey, let's get him into the studio and have a conversation. I think that was like eight months ago. It took us a long time to find a date that worked. He's a busy guy. Uh, but I think you will find this to be a fascinating conversation. If you're at all interested in startups, ventures, or behavioral psychology, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Matt Wallert. My special guest today is Matt Wallert. 
He is a behavioral psychologist and entrepreneur. He has built a number and sold a number of startups. He went to Microsoft to work on products that he could build at larger scale, eventually becoming a director at Microsoft Ventures. Matt Wallard, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thanks for having me, man. So let's talk a little bit about your background, which is very eclectic. <laughs> you studied both science and psychology. You you work in the tech field, but you're also a behaviorist. Which came first? I was definitely a science kid and not a psychology kid. I'm from very rural Oregon and had, if anything, I was anti-psychology, right? I'm a true, like, middle of nowhere kid where- You, you and the trees. Well, and your impression of psychologists is like, these are people who tell you what to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, or tell you what you think, right? You have this impression from television. I don't think there was a psychologist in 60 miles right. of where I was, right? It's not like New York where you grow up everybody's got a therapist, everybody knows what this is. Like, it was a totally unknown quantity. And so I actually was really anti-psych. Um, and then when I went to Swarthmore, I took uh, intro psych, and it was taught by a wonderful, wonderful professor who's a great research professor, terrible teacher. Mm -hmm. Like, you couldn't even get up and leave the room kind of teacher uh -huh. because it would throw him off. But then I took another psych class with arguably the best teaching professor at Swarthmore. And I had this amazing experience where uh, they reviewed a study and I sort of said to him, you know, I don't I don't really agree with their interpretation of the results. Not that I disagree with the data. I just don't think they're interpreting it right. And he said, well, this is the most important thing any teacher could do. He said, look, the rest of the field agrees with this interpretation, but this is science. And so there's an orderly way for you to argue. You do an experiment that proves your side, right? You provide countervailing evidence. Like you can like have a structure. There's a scientific method that allows you to challenge the prevailing belief and, system. And I was hooked at that moment. That was the moment where I went from, you know, so turned off by, well, we just debate things and whoever's a better orator kind of wins to like, no, we can go and, you know, you don't disagree with somebody, you think they're interpreting it wrong? Great. Go run a study. So you get your undergraduate degree at, South, uh, at Swarthmore um, in psychology and education. Yep. And then you apply to the PhD program at Cornell for psychology? Yeah, social psychology. So I, um, it's actually funny, uh, I was sort of getting recruited by Stanford, Cornell, and University of Colorado. Mm -hmm. And um, I chose University of Colorado, and then my advisor calls me up and he says, hey, I'm moving to Cornell. So either you can come to Colorado, but I won't be here, or you can go with me to Cornell. So I went to Cornell. And you're a startup guy. Why not Stanford? You would think that's a natural fit. But I'm not a startup guy, right? I'm a first-generation college kid. I've never... The way I got into startups was was uh, Abhi Karnani's fault, right? Like, I'm, I was in, in the PhD program at, at uh, Cornell, and he uh, sort of uh, called me up and he said, look, we're running this startup. We think you could give us some advice. And I said, literally, I don't know anything about startups. I don't know anything about tech. I don't know anything about finance. Right, his personal finance was Min.com's so competitor called Thrive. We sold the mm -hmm. lending tree. And I said, I don't know anything about any of this. He said, don't worry, we'll figure out how to get the value out of you. And then a year later, I was their head of product. His name, what was his name? So that's Avi Karnani. He was the CEO of Thrive. He's Avi now, Karnani, and and he was the founder? He was the he was the co-founder with, uh, with Ori Schnapps, who was the and, tech guy. And he brought you in in, in what role? Uh, as the, So as the lead scientist and sort of head of product, they had, they had built something. It wasn't, they had this inkling that it might not really be the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of came in and said, yep, not sort of behave from a behavioral science perspective. This is probably not, you're a little bit like Mitch. You're probably not going to move the needle. How do we go and build something that can? And then we built it. So let's back up a few steps. Sure. You're in the PhD program at Cornell. Yep. 
This is before Twitter, before Facebook, before social media. I'm not that old. Facebook existed, sort of. Uh, not broadly, not the way <laughs> not it did same. today. Yes. And it, by the way, when I say it's before all these things, I'm not talking about the 1920s. This is a decade ago. That's true. And how do they find you? I published some papers. They actually called Dick Thaler. This is what I love about academics, right? Like they list their phone now, numbers. Uh, and now things. Thaler is is at currently Chicago. at Chicago, but at, he was at Ch- one point in time he was in California. He was at Chicago at the time. Mm-hmm. He still because this wasn't that long ago. He was a previous ago. guest. I find his his work fascinating, and he's an endlessly entertaining guy. He is, and and look, Dick, uh, I mean, has done some really amazing work. And what I love about academics is like you know they just put their phone number and, and, and email, email on you right. know, and so they called him up and he answered the phone and he gave him like an hour's worth of advice, and then they, for free for yeah. Yeah, for free. And then, because this is before the days of startup mania, right? This is before everybody's going to be an advisor of something, right? Mm -hmm. They just, he was just sort of like, sure. And that's, I actually think, you know, one of the things I talk about often is, you know, if you need advice, go find a grad student. It's like the, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't charge very much. Like they don't know, you know, they don't know the true value of their information. And they're so passionate and happy to talk to you about it. So they called Dick Thaler. They got to the end of the hour and they were sort of like, we'd be our advisor. And he was like, no, you got to be kidding me, man. Like, I'm too busy. But go find a grad student. And so I was the grad student they sort of came up with. So how do they approach you about this? I mean, so we just got on a call and they said, sort of, here's what we're building. This is after the dot-com collapse, but you're sort of in the recovery before the financial before collapse. The, before the colla- financial collapse, which was which was key for us, right? Because here we are in this sort of personal finance space, and we get acquired by LendingTree just as the sort of financial collapses. What was it, that publicly announced? What the dollar amount was? Uh, no, it was a, it was a like a so break some news. What was the dollar? Uh, amount? Yeah, good try. Like <laughs> once again, you're talking to the science guy, right? Like I right. pay no attention to the cap table. As a matter of fact, I actually. So when they sent me, I I remember walking through the West Village and nobody should ever do this, by the way, like you should know what you're signing before you sign it. But I had to talk to Avi Karnani about like, what's a basis point, right? You've written me this offer letter with these equity. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, but like, what are these things? We'll give you at least five of them. Yeah, great. Well, we're we're walking through the West Village and he's like explaining, like I knew nothing about it. Here's a hundred basis points. That's fantastic. That's a lot, you know? (laughs) So I actually remember running around when I got my offer letter from them, running around being so happy about the salary because again, first generation college kid, like even startup money seemed like a lot of money to me. And so then they came to me, then there was this equity part. And I literally was like, I have no idea what this means. Actually, and years later, um, I went on to build a feminist tool called salary or equity.com mm-hmm. because women are less likely to accept startup offers because, because they want salary, not equity, because they want salary, not equity, or they don't know what equity means, or it seems riskier than it is. And so we actually built a little calculator where you put in your offer letter and it basically says That's like, That's right. kind of about well, 20, 30,000. So let, let's talk a little bit about behavioral science and how it fits into these various um, startup roles that you've had. What is the job of chief behavioral officer? So this is something I've actually written about and proposed sort of lately. Uh, and I'm trying really to resolve this, um, you know, this fundamental gap. If you go to any sort of C-level exec, they'll say, oh, I love behavioral science. You know, I love Dan Ariely. I love, you know, thinking right. fast and slow. I love nudging. I love all this stuff. And then I say, OK, well, where's your team? And they're like, what team? Right. So who's so, implementing these ideas in your actual business? That's right. Whose job is this? And and because we know if it's not somebody's job, it falls get by the done. Way. It right. doesn't get done. Right. And so and there are a smattering of people who have not taken that title, but are doing interesting things. So Steve Wendell, Morningside, um, you know, there are people who are doing sort of this. So what I sort of said was, I actually don't think this is business's fault. I think this is psychology's fault. Right. This is something actually we were just talking about a minute ago, you know, in, in the break. I think we haven't done a good job of explaining 
how do you go put it into a, an organization? In part because we stayed in academia, right? We didn't come out into business. Mm-hmm. And so I think a chief behavioral officer really has three jobs. One of them is the application of behavioral science internally, right? So take it for example. Meaning how do we get our employees to do what we think is in their own best interest? Yeah, and then the best, best in the country. You know, 80% of, of people say they're disengaged at their jobs. Who's addressing that, right? Like HR? Yeah, good luck, right? Like- Women, massive attrition. We know that like companies that have senior women, much, much better return profile. They do better on Wall Street, but women attreat a lot. HR has had 50 years to solve this problem and has done nothing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we should let behavioral science take a crack. Like how do we go change those behavioral things? So internal stuff, motivation, retention, recruitment, all, you know, work-life balance, all of these pieces. External stuff. Um, you know, actually revamping product and it depends what your product is. Um, one of the examples who runs their behavioral science lab is, you know, people spend, you know, let's call it 90 minutes a session in a Walmart. They're in line for five minutes. But if you survey them afterwards, that five minutes looms super large. They're six forever. It's the recency effect. It's the last thing they experienced. That's it's right. the one that has the biggest impact. That's right. You actually wrote about the checkout experience in hotels. Yes. Why are you giving me water when I exit? Give it, When I arrive, give it to me when I leave. Yeah, peak end, And I'm man. left with, uh, oh, isn't that nice as you, as you head out That's the right. Door. It's a peak end theory, right? I want those endpoints to really matter. And instead, you know, I, I actually was on the road this week. It feels like you're like, a thief. You're like stealing out of your hotel. You don't even go to the desk anymore, right? Because right? you just head right out. You're the just door. like you know. It's like dine and dash. You're exactly. Just you're pack like your bag and run out the I door. Sh- I feel like I'm doing something wrong when I like sneak out of my hotel to go to the airport. Um, so those sorts of things. So external stuff. And then now, now let me interrupt you. You say that this isn't all that well developed externally, but when I read about the science behind supermarkets and what's eye level and and what is. Uh, how the whole circumference of the store are the fresh foods and the interior of the store are all the packaged goods and what's here and how they make you go to the far opposite corner of the store to get milk, which is the number one item people come in. And the, it, it just works out. The longer you're in the supermarket, the more stuff you're going to buy. So if you're there for one item and you have to go as far as humanly possible from the entrance, you're going to end up doing more than just buy milk. Yes. And there have been like... That has become a whole science, right? There have been isolated pockets of sort of applied behavioral science. You know, in health, for example, they're starting to do some really good health decision-making work. There are these pockets where we've sort of seen stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem is too often companies are like, well, that's great for them. And they don't see how it applies to, to their product, right? It's great for those people over there, right? At this point, even I think, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, we're talking about behavioral economics and people Mm -hmm. sort of paying attention on the stock market. Like I think actually finance has done a better job, but the problem with finance doing a good job is like CPG has gone and said, well, that's great for finance, but it's a finance thing, right? Behavioral economics totally applies in finance, but what could they possibly be doing for us? So it's basically figuring out how to have lead people to the right decision and then giving them all the tools and pathways to get there. That's right. It, it doesn't matter what the field is. It's it's not about the widget. You know, the I think the, the Hitchcock movie – used to call it the McGinty or the MacGuffin. Yep, the MacGuffin. Whatever they were chasing was irrelevant. It was the chase that mattered. That's right. So if the MacGuffin was a Maltese Falcon or something completely different, it didn't matter. It was the chase that... uh... Well, and and I think that's actually a really good sort of summation of why behavioral science matters, right? It's a process. Mm -hmm. Behavioral scientists are trained interventionists, right? Let's take the Walmart line example. If you ask engineers, you say to engineers, well, the lines are too long. They're like, well, let's rejigger the POS system so people move through faster. Right. And if you ask like the store ops people, they'll tell you, well, let's put in more checkout counters so they're shorter. And those kind of things work. 
But the raw truth is people are in line for five minutes. It's not that they're in line for too long. Right. It feels too long. Right. So why don't you a behavioral come scientist, up with ways to either entertain them or keep them otherwise engaged, distracted, involved, so it doesn't feel like it's a long process. Exactly. Like, let's do what we did in the New York subway system. So New York subway, you know, we put in these signs that tell people when the subways are coming. People think the subways are running way faster. That absolutely. I just took a subway here, and the first thing you notice, the express is one minute, the local is three minutes, but I don't want to walk up that giant set of stairs. Right. I you hurt my leg, make... so I'll, I'll take the extra three minutes. And you can make a decision, right? And you, and it's three minutes and not like, you know, let's say you were running late to this thing. You know, you're looking at your watch going, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? Should I run upstairs? Should I switch to the You watch people like... leaning over the, uh, yeah, the, like... the edge of the subway. When is that train coming? And, and now you're looking at a screen. Oh, it's two minutes away. That's right. And the nice thing about that is it removes ambiguity and... Two minutes just doesn't sound very long, right? Right. So it, it contextualizes, it really isn't that long. So imagine doing that in line. What if we don't change the POS and add new lines? We just say, hey, you're going to be out of here in two minutes. That's interesting. You you call scientists train interventionists. Are these interventionists working in companies or are they still in academia? I think they're largely still in academia. And I think that's because we haven't gone to to companies and helped explain why this happens, right? So if you go to the Walmart example, right? If you go to the engineers, they'll have an engineering solution. If you go to the marketers, they'll have a marketing solution. There's nobody who's solution agnostic and is problem focused, right? And that's what science really is, right? When you think about any scientist, when you're running a bunch of experiments, right? You're essentially running an intervention, seeing if it works, running an intervention, seeing if it works. It's not the experiment that matters. It's the outcome that you care about. So, you know, in the pivot, the fixed point is the outcome. And then you pivot around experiments that help you test around that outcome. And so scientists almost accidentally become really good product people because what they're doing is, you know, I know what I'm trying to test. I know what I'm trying to test. I know what I'm trying to test. And I'll just test until I sort of am able to to get my hands around the edges. I don't have a predefined sort of, you know, this is the way that I operate against that. Let's talk a little bit about startups and culture. And I, I have to begin by asking you, I love the show Silicon Valley. It just started uh, the new season. Do you watch it? I don't. You don't? I, I don't. My and next question why. was, how accurate is it? Here's why. There's a reason I don't watch it. I've seen episodes. There's a reason I don't watch it. And it actually was challenging for me to watch the first season of Girls for the same reason, mm-hmm. which is it's it's clearly farcical. Uh-huh. But if you're, in, if you're in that part world? of the world- it's just a little too close to home for me, right? Uh-huh. It's like I don't like uncomfortable comedy, right? I'm like a true. So you're not a Larry David fan. Yeah, I don't. I don't do well with uncomfortable comedy, and it, and it is a little uncomfortable for me. And it's why you know I I help a lot of startups, but I try to make you know I try to spend as much time outside of that world as I can because I think that's where. You, you know, if you, if you want to be a good product person, you got to be exposed to the problems, right? And and I think one of the problems of Silicon Valley is it has so insulated itself from problem sets, you know, it's just <laughs> right. solving its own problems at this I, point. You know, the, there's two things I, I have to share with you. First, I'm not the target demographic for girls. Watch the first <laughs> show and basically, you know, uh, sorry, tap tapping out really early on that one. But the fascinating thing about Mike Judge, who is behind mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, he started out doing the broadest, I mean, idiocracy. Yeah. The broadest, dumbest comedy, and then narrowed it down, narrowed it down. I think he did Office uh, Office Space, yep. which was a little more, uh, ridiculous, but not quite as ridiculous. This is the one that 
you know, it, it's clearly parody, but it seems to venture into cinema verite quite often. And it, it yeah. to someone who's not out there, it really rings true. Yeah. I mean, and it is... And it's hilarious. Uh, it, and it is really funny and really well acted. And I think... Uh, Great cast. They've done... Yeah, they've done it... Uh, I think casting really was what made that show, right? They're, they're believable characters that are able to carry it off. As opposed to like... Um, uh, what's the other skeeky science show that's more slapstick? Uh, Big Bang. Big Bang, right? That that is clear sort of laugh track comedy, right? Right. You know the characters are so over the top, so unbelievable. You're not supposed to feel like you know those people. Um, in Silicon Valley, I really do know. <laughs> you right. sort of know those people. So so let's let me ask the same question differently. How does startup culture get unfairly mischaracterized? In general, not just HBO, but in general, what do we misunderstand about startup culture? Educate the listening public if you can. Uh, so that's an interesting and hard question. I think it's not, uh, and I, I want to sort of caveat this carefully, right? So I think it, it, people really do think of Silicon Valley. They think of young white males mm -hmm. doing these things. And in reality, there are, you know, we know- Lots of people of color. That's right. Old, older entrepreneurs with families are more likely to have sort of better exits, right? Like we actually know there's a bunch of other variables. There's a lot of really interesting startups in the middle of the country. You know, there, there are a lot of things. Now, there's not as many people of color as we'd want. There's not as many women as we'd want. That's a serious issue that we're- I've No spent, doubt about it. I spent a huge amount of my time working on. And that's, but it's a little bit of a see it, be it problem, right? If we See it, be it problem. Yeah, see it, be it problem is like, well, if I never see a female scientist as a little girl, how do I ever have the opportunity to think, oh, I might be So that. it's a cycle that, that has to be broken. That's right. And so we need to be fiercely critical of the homogeny of startups, while at the same time recognizing all of the people that are outside of that homogeny that, you know, we need to hold those up so that we get more of them, right? That that's really uh, that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk a bit about the gender bias that's out in Silicon Valley. There's been a couple of high profile lawsuits. We've seen the turmoil at Uber because of it. Um, even a big venture capital firm like uh, Kleiner Perkins had <laughs> had a litigation. Is there a gender bias issue? In, oh yeah, in I mean, there's no, there's no. To, to me, that's a that's like saying, is there global warming, mm -hmm. right? 99% of economists will tell you that there is a gender wage gap, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, to me, denying the science, it's amazing to me, the people that deny the science of it, that they think that's a problem of opinion. I did this research actually with, with Payscale, where they said, hey, do you want to put anything in our survey? I said, yeah, I want to ask two questions. Um, do you think men and women have equal opportunities in the workplace in general? Mm -hmm. And do you think men and women have equal opportunities um, in your workplace? And if you look at men... Only one in five men see sexism both near them and in the world, right? So only one in five men, something that we know is scientifically true, like actually are able to see that. Another one in five see it in the world, but not near them. And three of five men just don't think it exists out there or in here. That many, three of five. Three in five. My special guest today is Matt Wallert. He is an entrepreneur, behavioral psychologist, and previously he was a director at Microsoft Ventures, where he did a, a variety of work, including some behavioral psychology at Bing. Is that correct? So that was actually prior to, to joining Ventures. I joined mm -hmm. Ventures when I came back to New York um, 
uh, I have a, a lovely 18-month-old, and my wife said, you know, we were out in Seattle. She said, I want to come back to New York where my family is. I said to Microsoft, hey, I'm, I'm going to go back. And they said, Ventures. I said, okay. And uh, and so I spent a, a good time there, but previous to that had done a bunch of product what, work. What did you company. do with Bing? And, and how does behavioral psychology apply to Bing? My favorite thing about Bing has been the uh, three-dimensional bird's eye view. They were the first mapping software that had that. And when you're looking for a house, you're like, oh my God, I could see the park, I could see the house, I could see the water. I could it's amazing the level of detail that you could zoom in on with that product. I, I was fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, I, mapping in general has always been fascinating to me since, you know, coming from a rural place, I didn't have exposed, you know, I didn't, you didn't get to go as many places as you do when you're on these coasts, it's easier to travel around and things. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a fun, really fun way to, you know, I looked at a lot of maps as a kid as a way of like sort of visualizing the rest of the world. Um, so, so I really, when I first came to Microsoft, they sort of said, look, you know, our, our product process is very engineering driven, um, which sometimes means that we make things that people aren't actually interested in using. Mm -hmm. So we want to sort of reverse that. How do you think about what people want to use? And so the first thing I actually ever worked on at Microsoft was um, putting Klingon into the Bing translator. Oh, yeah. And it was, uh, it was actually a really hard project because Klingon is actually a, uh, you know, it's a created language and uh -huh. the linguist that created it, Mark Okrand, um, you know, basically want to break all the earthly rules. So like all terrestrial languages, real languages have a way of saying hello. The Klingon way of saying hello is just what do you want? Right. And so when you try and do that in a you translator, sure that's not Yiddish. I'm, I, I <laughs> what? Be. What do you want from me? It's not that far off. Yeah. And so it was very it was very funny. I mean, it's hard to make a translator. But the, the point was, how do we make something that takes a a an audience that normally wouldn't engage with our translation and sort of start to look at it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, that's interesting. And so that was the kind of thing that I did at Microsoft. So, you know, I created our, what's now known as our Bing in the Classroom program. And so they- And what is Bing in the Classroom? Well, so, so, so they started with a key data insight, which was we're not seeing as much search traffic from schools as we would think we do. Mm -hmm. And so they had these plans. The marketing department decided, well, kids aren't curious enough. And so we're going to have these plans go run a campaign around like encouraging curiosity in kids. And I said, look, I got a teaching degree. Like, let's just go look at some stuff. And, you know, kids are plenty curious. You go out sure. to a classroom, you can see kids are curious. Like, that's transparently not the problem. And so when you go out and look, right, one of the tenets of behavioral science, go look at how people are behaving. You know, it was really teacher driven and it was actually huh. less about they wanted to search. It was what we call inhibiting pressures. So it was concerns about advertising, right? Adver you know, schools are advertising free zones. Uh, search engines are not. Privacy. I don't really know what Google's doing with my data, but I have concerns about it, right? Mm -hmm. I have concerns about them taking my kids' data. And then... Um, Even classroom searches? I mean, of all the things... Well, that's the problem, right? It's all identifiable, right? And uh -huh. if they were using... Particularly if you're using Google in the classroom, so signing into Gmail and those sorts of things, then your searches then are all getting identified with that profile, right. right? So it's all getting sucked into some profile and I don't know what they're doing with it. And then the third concern was adult content. So what we did was roll out a version of Bing, Bing in the classroom, that's free for schools to sign up for. And then when you search from schools, it's ad free. Mm -hmm. um, not tracked. Yeah, not no tracked. Porn. And, and and safe searches locked on. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then Google eventually did the same thing sort of following on to us. Um, and so, but again, you saw massive behavioral change. You saw sort of forty percent increases in school wow, searches. That's a giant number. But that's the thing. Like so often, people think that the problem is what we call a promoting pressure, like curiosity. People don't want. They're like, oh, why aren't people searching? Well, they don't want to, right? And so we're going to encourage them to want to. So but that's so not why, the problem. Why aren't you working for United Airlines? Don't don't they need a chief behavioral psychologist, especially for their own 
people's so, decision making so as this well is, as this is the goal of my CBO sort of crusade that I'm mm. on is I do think airlines I've actually done work with Southwest like I do which think is fun, airlines which is a totally different experience and, and it's funny actually I got kicked off a of United flight uh, oh for what um, so I uh, this was actually this was a that was a puddle jumper I heard you mention this yeah thing. so I got I got kicked off of a puddle jumper years ago um, because the stewardess was abusing the guy in front of me and I said excuse me what's your name and she knew in that moment He's going to report me. Right. And she said, I want you guys off my plane. And it turns out a stewardess can kick whoever they want off right. the gate agent. For any can't, reason. For any reason, gate agent can't do anything about it. Right. Uh, and so so they kicked me off. And it's funny because- Did you get her name? Uh, I, I did. You know, I, I she should say her name and then she kicked me off the plane. And it's funny, you know, United was not, they basically think if you get kicked off a plane, it's your own fault. Right. right. They and and interestingly, they've not been very apologetic. You know, they're sort of like, this guy <laughs> deserved what he got. You know, uh, they, they're- this whole thing has been so bungled, you know, from a from Scott Galloway at NYU has just reamed United for there are three rules of this. You not only violated each of the rules, I, and I'm doing this from memory. Admit your error, offer to accept responsibility, offer to repair it. Each step along the way, you just made it worse. It's, yes. it's astonishing, it, and it really. I mean, I, I have to say, I could drag back up their old their old like apology letter to me but it really was the same sort of thing right. that we're like yeah that's the corporate culture there yeah and it was and and that's where culture really matters it's, mm -hmm. and it's funny actually a, a friend of mine dan storms great product guy here in the city uh tweeted at me today he said oh it looks like united was listening because i had tweeted at alaska and uh virgin and said hey you know you should put into your employee app a way that makes it much easier for them to make decisions like giving somebody free food or free entertainment or miles on the spot when something bad happens. And United Today said, hey, we're going to do that. Oh, really? That's yeah. quite fascinating. That was part of, the, part of their, their announcement, I think, this morning or yesterday was we put it in our app. I, I think two years from now, this will have blown over, but there's this is a giant drag on them for God knows how long. And it's the thing that's amazing is it's so avoidable. It's such a self-inflicted wound. And this is the thing I think, you know, this is why I'm on this sort of CBO sort of quest. Chief I, behavioral officer. Chief behavioral officer, because I think there are so many things that we see as fait accompli that, that really are actually avoidable, right? I mm -hmm. think that, you know, we going back to the gender issue, right? Like we think, oh, women get pregnant and they leave the workplace and they don't want to come back. That's not true at all, right? Like there are all these systematic structural things. We don't have to accept these things as true, right? Everything is on the table for change. So I've tried to bring a lot of women onto the show and there is a chicken and egg issue in that I want to bring senior women with experience and, and expertise and there are plenty of them, but they're now in such demands that either they don't respond or I've, I've had 10 or 15 percent of the 150 or so guests are women. But, it, you know, it's no way near half. And I don't even think it's proportionate to how the industry is structured. But you're still starting out with a, an industry that at the senior level, forget 50-50. I don't even think we're 75-25 in finance and, and some other related fields. It's astonishing. And so your example of having a, a woman, a kid, see a female scientist, there is this sort of, uh, what, which see comes first? A, yeah, there's the see it be a problem. And, and you know, I, this is, this is why it is so frustrating that three and five men don't think sexism exists. Like, I think people don't draw things to their natural conclusion, right? If what you're saying is there's no sexism, there's no systematic sexism in the world, Yet, yet we only have sort of like 10% female CEOs, you're telling me that there is some genetic 
gendered reason that women can't run companies. And if that's a statement making, you're just, I can't say things on air. Like you're just wrong, right? Like that, you, you, the natural conclusion of those two facts is that we are genetically born to be a CEO. Something about the genetics that makes you a man also makes you CEO worthy, right? That's what you're saying. If you're saying sexism doesn't exist and the status quo that we have is, is, is less, less women. So let's talk about some of the startups that you've done that are geared towards making the world a better place. Tell us about salary or equity. So I uh, have a, like the product guy in me, every time I build something, I recognize how I screwed it up and then I have to build something to sort of correct my screw up. You need closure. That's right. And so, um, you know, salary or equity is a really a reaction to that conversation we were talking earlier, right? Where I got my first offer and I didn't know anything about equity, Mm -hmm. right? And so there are whole underrepresented groups who, when we bring them into the startup environment because they didn't you know, grow up with an engineer parent. They didn't grow up with a Silicon Valley parent. They didn't grow up with these things. I don't know what equity is, right? And so we've actually created a little tool where you come in and you sort of put in some of the variables from your offer letter and it'll give you a risk adjusted sort of, yeah, it's kind of like $20,000 a year in salary, right? Mm -hmm. So that you can start to compare offers um, in better ways. You know, we built Get Raised, uh, which is helpful. Different different startup than startup or equity, but yeah, we working just, in a sort of a, a- An adjacent space, right? right? And so this is the, you know, uh, we've helped women earn $2.3 billion in raises um, by sort of um, creating a structure where they can come in, you tell me what you do, where you work, how much you make. We'll tell you if you're underpaid. Mm-hmm. And then you. Answer, so you're comparing this against a database of that that job that's yeah salary, exactly. That we level. use Bureau of Labor Statistics data. We use our own data. We use public market data. Um, and then you answer a few that's more questions, and it generates a letter that you can give to your boss, basically laying out a like, here's market, here are open job postings in the area, here's what I've done, here's what I'm going to do, like here's how I provide business value, and that's been incredibly effective at getting women uh, raises. Um, and so two point three billion dollars so far. And you guys take ten percent of that. Is that no, right? we t- it's all free. We have been speaking with Matt Wallert, formerly of Microsoft Ventures and a variety of other enterprises. Check out my daily column at Bloomberg.com slash view or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast. Matt, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Uh, we were talking during the break about the various names you have <laughs> for startups. Get Raised, Salary or Equity, Churnless, Thrive. Who, who creates these? You know, uh, so some of them I remember exactly where it came from. Uh, Thrive was before my time. Um uh, Churnless, I actually was the CMO of Thrive. We were, I remember having a drink with him. And Thrive he was, was what was sold to Lending Tree, the yeah. competitor to Mint. Yeah, exactly. How is that the opposite? Because if you go to Mint, you can't find a Thrive tab. 
is it just integrated and and you mean it's not a standalone uh, lending you mean tree? Yeah, right. so they renamed it Money Right, and then I think shuttered it of uh, in mm-hmm. one of their sort of. Is that the natural end game for all these acquisitions, or are they really just acquires uh, and they want the engineering talent? No, I think there was real product there, but I think you know it happened at a time you know when the collapse came the, along. when the collapse came along, and I think you know business had to reorient. They, they built they built it bought it. Primarily because we could show that we could raise people's credit scores substantially in a fairly short amount of time. So you could really, get, yeah, you get credit score increases on the twenty to fifty point range in six months. And so their idea was, look, you know, a six hundred mortgage lead isn't worth nearly as much as a six fifty. Sure, let's send our people who are not really ready to you. You'll turn them around, get them ready, and then bring them back when they're when they're huh. you know that, that, better that's able. That's fascinating. Uh, what is churnless? So churnless, this was so I actually, it's one of the few names I actually really like. Uh, and and it was and everybody knows what churn is. It's uh, you go to Netflix. They added so many subscribers, but they lost so many. And so I was, I was having a, a, a drink with the CMO of Thrive uh, after the acquisition. He had left Thrive, and he and I were just talking. And, and you know, we were talking about what makes a good company good. Mm-hmm. And you know, I said good companies are churnless, right? Like you know, no one ever has to leave because it meets their needs, right? And I was like. And that could like, be employees, that could be customers, yeah, it exactly. could be anything. I was like, you know, that because I'm a behavior guy, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, churn is the ultimate sort of like measure of behavior, right? Because it's literally, it's am I doing this or not? Behavior, am right. I going to do it or not do it? And so I sort of was like, oh, really good companies don't have churn. And he was like, you should call your next company churnless. And I was like, all right, and we did. And did it have anything to do with reducing churn in companies? It did. Or? So we were well, we were building. You know, we built sort of behavioral interventions for lots of people. We built the ARPs retirement tools. We built um, um, some various interventions around sort of uh, choice in in food and exercise and other things. And it was always about behavior. And so the idea really was to build interesting, sticky behavior modifying things. Uh, for the world, that's where get raised. You know, we built that on the side while we were there, mm-hmm. right? It, it was building those sorts of things. Yeah, and um, salary equity you went over that. You, so yep. get raised generates a letter, which the individual takes to their boss. Salary or equity is really just informational. Yeah, so here's the, the value of the offer you've gotten. Yeah, so the the net result of salary equity is is basically taking the equity portion of your offer and it gives you a sentence that says you should think, sort of think of this as like X number of dollars per year, mm-hmm. right? So it says it basically takes into account vesting um, and sort of risk adjusted return and sort of breaks that into a yearly salary. So that if you're comparing, for example, a startup offer and a Microsoft offer, you can say the equity component is worth blank. So. Here's the question I, I have to ask you, and, and I found this fascinating um, in, in your bio. So you, you keep saying, I'm a behavior guy, I'm a psychologist, I'm a behavioral psychology guy. But all the speeches I've seen you've given, most of the writings I've seen you've made, they invariably have a focus or at least an element of this technology, this startup, this. And, and you said, when I left Microsoft, I got far more recruiter inbound based on my background in startups and ventures than I did in behavioral science, despite being considerably better at the latter. So why is that? You know, I think it goes back to this. I don't think companies are, are there's a few companies out there looking for behavioral scientists, um, but most of them, I don't think have woken up to the fact that they don't have teams and they need to, right? That this is going to be the sort of next way they're going to generate value in their business, mm-hmm. um, both internally and externally. Uh, and so I, I think that's, you know, a part of what's behind that. I think I lean towards um, technology, you know, technology, when I meet with people, you know, I built lots of things in the world that are not technology focused. They just, you know, 
often their integrations into other programs, right? Technology often builds standalone things, and mm -hmm. so they're easier to point to. Um, and I know how to build them fast and, and cheap and come from that world. And so, you know, it, it's natural that I gravitate there. But I don't think it has to be technology, right? We were talking earlier about the subway signs, right? You know, I think putting up a sign in a Walmart line is not a, you know, there's nothing tech about that. Um, it's just a, you know, a it's, good just the TV it's a good behavioral the intervention, right. right? It's a good behavioral intervention. So there, there was something fascinating that uh, I read that I have to ask. You, you, I know you do a lot of speaking gigs, mm -hmm. but you refuse to accept speaking fees. Yeah, I do. And uh, the, just in the news was Obama being uh, criticized for taking a $400,000 speaking fee from a Wall Street firm. The rest of us who are either in academia, authors, writing books, or just otherwise uh, public figures, it's a lucrative side gig. Mm -hmm. You know, the greatest thing I could do during lunch is walk out of my office, walk three blocks, walk into a conference room, go blah, blah, blah for 45 minutes, pick up a check for 25 grand, and go back to lunch. Why have you decided... I'm not interested in taking uh, speaking fees. I mean, I think what you choose to get paid for is really an important way of of, of how you approach life, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we all, almost I don't disagree with you. Almost every everything that you could do is is potentially monetizable, right? Like, um, you know, okay. Almost, I mean, listen, I speak at, at nonprofits all the time. I don't charge them. I speak at universities. I've spoken at NYU, at MIT, at Harvard, at Columbia. I never charge, even though Harvard is richer than, you know, Croatia's, I never charge them a, a speaking fee because it's an educational thing. But if it's a conference where they're selling tickets and people are, are doing it for more than a break even, what... Why wouldn't you? And and by the way, there are things that other people get paid for that I've elected not to get paid for because it allows me to stay objective and neutral and accept or reject what I want because it's what I want as opposed to going and earning a buck. And to enjoy it, mm -hmm. right? And to enjoy it. And I want to enjoy the spread of information. I think spreading information is incredibly important. And I think, you know, uh, the places that do that do... Um, there's some places that sort of say we want to pay you a speaker fee and that's just part of how we work. So I asked them to donate to a domestic violence shelter. So I actually just came back from El Paso yesterday where a, an agency had a fee structure and they donated to a, a, a domestic violence shelter on my behalf. Um, so so there are, you know, sometimes it happens. But generally speaking, like, I think people should get paid for doing, mm -hmm. right? Unless, unless, the, unless sharing knowledge is your job, right? Like if my job is a journalist, yeah, I get paid for that. Right. If your job is to be a speaker, get paid for that. I just don't want my job to be a spe being a speaker. I always want my job to be building things. And, and so that, actually change, that changes what you will or won't accept because now it's like, who do I want to talk to? I don't care about the salary. I don't care about this. That's right. It's oh, that's an audience I want to address. Sure, that's fly, right. I fly have me out to wherever. And, and you know, and so I do. You know, speak. I turn away a lot of speaking engagements. Send them off to other people that that I think would be better uh, or more interesting. You know, uh, I'll actually correct something you said earlier. You referred to me as a cold consultant. I don't consult either. Right? You don't. No, I only. What is? I believe in. You know. Coming to get, to change your mind to how, to get you to think differently about behavioral science mm -hmm. is part of what's important to me in the world, and I think it generates a better world. And I want to do it for as many people as I can. What I charge money for is coming and actually doing it, 
right? Mm -hmm. I want to get charged for the doing. I want to get paid on the things that I build, the implementation, the execution, because that's what matters. Because here's the thing about science, right? None of my ideas are original. They come from a long lineage of people sure. before me. You're right? standing on the shoulders of giants. And, the... and many people will stand on my shoulders after me, right? There's this long, and, and if every one of those people, like, again, I, I, I like taking these to their sort of extremes because it makes me think of, you know, sort of think differently about them. Mm -hmm. If all of those people before me had refused to share their information unless it was monetized, I could never be where I am. There's a fascinating Priceonomics article that talks about how a handful of people have bought up the publishers of all the scientific journals and mm -hmm. university um, peer-reviewed things and they're charging absurd money for subscriptions. Yes. And it's really crimping the exchange of ideas. That's something that should not be a for-profit entity. Somebody should have had the forethought of buying it and putting it in the public sphere. Public domain, right. I think that, that you know, that's the kind of like Mike Bloom, Bloomberg sort of philanthropy kind of thing is buying up those rights. And I think science has responded appropriately, which is to say, we don't, we're going to care less about those journals than we used right. to. We're going to start doing open science. There's the replicability product, right? Like project, like we're starting to do these things that say, you know, science should take place in public, both because people draw conclusions from its stuff and it should be replicable and important. And because everyone should have access to those insights. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you did a TED talk that I thought was really interesting about motivating people to do work worth doing. Yeah. Explain. So there's this quote I love from Teddy Roosevelt, uh, far and away the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. Um, and I think, you know, I, like money is meaningful and I don't, you know, for anyone without it, they'll tell you how meaningful it it's is. It's a tool that helps you achieve things that are useful in life. But there is certain, but from a motivational perspective, what we see is meaning actually, you know, once you sort of surpass a certain level of money, meaning is far more important. Right. You know, one of the things I actually bring up in this talk that, you know, I think illustrates this well is if you ask seniors in college, you know, what's important about your first job, they all say salary. Like salary is the most important feature. If you survey them a mere year into the job market, Meaning has become the leading experience, indicator. meaning what they've learned. That's right. Those things become the far more important piece. Right? People get this very quickly. Um, and I actually think that's one of the crises of mental health in the United States is just how many people go to work and are miserable, mm -hmm. disengaged, you know, sort of don't find meaning in their work. Um, this idea of meaning management, I actually think, is really important. How do you go and say, you know, and I actually think there are interesting tech tools you could build. So imagine something like, let's pretend you were a coder. And you're far, far removed from the end user, right? You're working at right. Microsoft, so it's it's not a small startup or something. You're far removed from the end user. What if I said to you, hey, you, did you know 7 million people touched your code today? Right? What a powerful, like, sure. you know, sort wow. of motivating investment. And it's true, right? There's almost, you know, almost everything that people do in the world, like from even the lowliest janitor. Like, imagine if I could say after you clean this hall, hey, did you know, like 10,000 people walked this hall today, right? Like, that's an amazing, just allowing people to see the echoes of what they do. Um, you know, and it goes into so many things. I mean, I think one of the points I make in this thing about sort of college students is we sell college to people as as a financial thing, mm -hmm. right? We say the reason to go to college is to make more money. To get a job. To... That, that's right. And it is to get a job, but what it's really about is to get a meaningful job, right? What college allows you to do is to is to have the privilege of picking something that is important to you, right? Um, and so I think that, that uh, I, I love science fiction, 
um, not just sort of on a personal entertainment level, but you know, when I, when product people come and tell me like, what do you, I, I habitually don't read nonfiction. I talk to people to learn things and I read to learn about the world emotionally. And so I read almost a totally fiction huh, and I love, and I love science fiction because science fiction is this clever thought experiment of the world with limits removed. And it starts to get you thinking in interesting product direction. You mentioned earlier, um, you know, uh, idiocracy. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I think is a particular kind of vision of the world. But I think there's also a vision of the world that's very Star Trek. Like think about Star Trek. They exist in a sort of post need world. We've been able we can synthesize matter out of energy. Right. And so we've sort of surpassed basic human needs. And what do they do? Like, do they, they sit on their couch and watch travel, uh, travel the universe and explore? That's right. And they do amazing science and they build amazing art. And like, I actually think that's the real thing. I think if you the big change of a post-need world, there's a lot of people scared about what happens as as robots displace jobs. Right. And what's, I think the really amazing part of that is that it frees up people to do other things. And the real dominant question is not how do we replace those jobs with, with you know, so there are other meaningless jobs. It's what do we do with the sheer amount of human potential that has now been unlocked, right? Like how do we incorporate those people into science? How do we incorporate them into design? How do we incorporate them into other things that computers don't do well? Not just to sort of employ them, but because this is our shot at the future, right? How do we take the 10,000 people that got displaced by, you know, sort of closing a factory and get them started thinking about greening the world? That That's interesting. I, something else that came up in one of your public speeches stayed with me. What do M&Ms tell us about human psychology? So people... Uh, uh, I love this example, although I will tell you that, that I'm going to find something different because the Mars people are like, refuse to give me free M&Ms for life, uh, which I think after having mentioned it so many times, I ought to be able to get at least a package. Had you taken a speaking fee, I you know, could have bought I buy my own. That's right. Right. So so uh, the the really powerful thing I think about M&Ms as a, as a sort of metaphor for behavior change is that it shows how people focus on the wrong thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of people really go think about creating new flavors, how delicious they are, et cetera. But the dominant thing that keeps me from eating M&Ms all the time is availability, right? Mm -hmm. If there were M&Ms right here, I'd be eating them right now, right? right? And so would you, right? Like it's that availability factor that is so interesting. And so, you know, what people forget is mostly motivating reasons already exist, Right. Let's go back to let's use a, a another kind of related example, the, the asking for a raise piece. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not like women don't want to get paid fairly. It's not like I don't that M&Ms aren't delicious. The reason women don't ask is because it's hard and there are systematic pressures that keep them from asking. The reason I don't eat M&Ms is because they're not here. There are systematic inhibiting pressures. And I think people don't. There are M&Ms upstairs. We could pick some up. We could pick some up on the way. I sort of you saw You are those. at Bloomberg. So I, this could happen. The candy shop is open. Uh, I, and I might take some to go. So, I'm so the question is, why do people eat more M&Ms when they're multicolored than if you were to just put one color in a bowl, people actually eat less M&Ms? Yeah, we love, those sort of, that we love that diversity of colors. You know? Even though I don't think blindfolded, anyone could tell the difference. There is it's no just, difference. They're, they'll tell you there's no, there's no taste difference. Uh, it's actually one of the things I always you know, when I try and jog people's mind with this, you know, I'm like, think about the fact that you have a favorite color of M&M. Any kid on earth will tell you what his favorite cover, color mm -hmm. is, right? He's going to, she's going to tell you, he's going to tell you, I save the green ones for last because they're the best. Why the hell are they the best? They don't taste any different than the other ones, but they have a favorite color. And I think part of behavioral science, the part of reason that behavioral science is so important in organizations is because it embraces that irrational part of ourselves. The part that says, it's not about how long in line I am in line, it's about how being in line feels. 
right? The part that says it's not about the fact that the M&Ms don't taste different. I still have a favorite color. I'm, you have to be familiar with the brown M&Ms and the Van Halen Rider oh, of story. Course. Yes. I love the idea that that's a built-in verifier of have, have these persons actually gone through a full rider and done the full technology requirements that I uh, want out of the thing. And, and and brown M and M's are irrelevant, but it's an instant check. Have they done it or not? Yes, it's a it's a great behavioral hack, and I think there's all sorts of those interesting kinds of behavioral hacks in the world. I actually remember when I was a kid. You know how many people actually remember like lessons from sixth grade? Like not many people. And I remember science class day one. Uh, Mr. Mars, I think was his name, was the science teacher, and he gave us our first set of experimental directions, and the first, the first uh, instruction was read these experiment, these instructions completely before doing anything, and there were about ten steps. And, and the, the last step was was don't do anything at all. And right. I had an exam like that, and I love that. I mean, I love it is stuck with me forever, right? And will stick with me forever. And I, I think that and everybody gets to work step by step, and most people don't follow the instructions. I think the last step was. If you've run this step, quietly fold your paper in half, bring it up to the classroom, and then you can leave. Or mm-hmm. or something like that. So all these people are working away. That's right. And two or three people have walked out of the class, and nobody understands why. That's right. Everybody looks at them and thinks they're crazy. And I actually think that's – I've never thought about it this way, but it's a good metaphor for why I think behavioral science is so important. Because it's outcome-focused, right? It, mm-hmm. it doesn't just try and apply whatever the tool is, right, I go logically through these steps. It says – what happens if we break the rules? What happens if we get outside of these tools? What happens if we start with the outcome and then work, work backwards. backwards? Huh, that's quite interesting. So let me get to some of my favorite questions. I'm going to call you out Speed for, some, for some BS that you said earlier. I'm going to challenge you on something. Good, challenge me but on let, stuff. But let's, uh, let's plow this uh, through us. So you told us about your background. You're working in, in academics, studying for your PhD. You go to work at a startup. Before Microsoft, give us the run of, of your background quickly. What was your your path? So it was was Thrive. We got acquired by LendingTree. Then I was at LendingTree for a while. We broke out. We did uh, uh, churnless, uh, built a bunch of things, sold that, um, came to Microsoft, did product at Microsoft, then ventures at Microsoft, and now I'm chief dad. So chief I, have dad. A, I have an 18-month-old. <laughs> CDO, and, that's chief right. dad officer. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors. You strike me at somebody, as somebody who has benefited greatly Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would not. I am a strong believer in mentorship. You know, I, I think I'm a Boy Scout, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I think that Boy Scouts had a profound effect on me as having a Scoutmaster had mm-hmm. a profound effect on me. Um, you know, and I couldn't, I would be remiss in, you know, Andrew Ward and Barry Schwartz, both professors at Swarthmore. Uh, Barry, obviously, very famous for the sort of choice reduction stuff and all his TED Talks and mm-hmm. things. Um, Andrew Ward was the professor that I talked about earlier that um, said there's an orderly way to sort of a approach disagreement in science which is doing an experiment like that's mm-hmm. your chance to disagree is to run to prove it right um and i think that that has had a profound impact on the rest of my life mm-hmm. um so you know i think my parents were amazing role models um in part what did your parents do so my mom is a nurse and my dad works in durable medical equipment basically um, um wheelchairs uh, mom got her college degree right after i got mine um so she she graduated uh she was a floor nurse forever uh and and you know dad uh, didn't go to college, but they both are, in, you know, so smart and inquisitive. And and my house was a place where, you know, I'll give a great example. You know, Oregon's a ballot measure state, right? So mm-hmm. every year we get the ballot measures and my parents would 
from as far back as I can remember, five or six, we would have a family discussion about what we all thought about the ballot measures. Really? And I would disagree. Like we were free to disagree. We were free to like sort of like they gave us the the pamphlet and we were. How many siblings in the house? Just one brother, 18 months older. So the two of you and the parents debating Oregon ballot measures. Yeah, just talking about. I just wrote a column on on Canada's marijuana initiative and trace the history of legal weed in America. And everybody thinks it's California, but actually it's Oregon. It's like 1976 decriminalized medical marijuana long before California did it. Yeah, Oregon's Sometime a, in the 70s. I don't remember the exact Oregon's date. a fascinating sort of state, right? Uh, in some way, you know, everything east of the mountains is high desert. You right. Know, all sorts of kinds of people. It's both strangely sort of like a hippie mecca, but also very religious. Do I mean, you, it's I, such an interesting You don't blend. watch Silicon Valley. Do you watch Portlandia? <laughs> So my so, joke, my joke is, you know, I thought it was a sitcom, but then I've been to Portland a few times and I learned it was a documentary. That's right. I mean, it is it is sort of eerily like home sometimes. And th- that's good and fascinating and interesting. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I really love about Oregon is you could simultaneously in some ways like Friday Night Lights is also a documentary sure, about Oregon. absolutely. Right? Like, it's about Texas, but, it, you know, in many ways it's about Oregon, right? Like, I came from a small town with a championship football team, and the whole town showed up for games. And Oregon is a microcosm of all sorts of different things. And and yet they've managed to live in relative sort of peace and harmony. There's not a ton of acrimony. Um, it's, a, it's a very— Isn't that changing? Hasn't—even uh, though I know most of the people who, have, who are in, like, Portland— are relatively newcomers, like everybody seems to be uh, an immigrant. Uh, and what I find fascinating is Portland is a town that used to be a mill and mining town, and all these old buildings and factories have been wonderfully converted to restaurants and theaters, and and you could see the rough-hewn, original, exposed timbers. It's 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 really fascinating— but isn't there now starting to be a little chafing about the gentrification? Well, and, I think there's look. I think anytime and the crowds and the and you guys are starting to get traffic out there. There's always going to be some chafing, right? Um, anytime in a city that grows, like I think that's inevitable. Like, like, grows on uh, like a weed. Like they are yeah. one of the fastest growing cities in the country. I think Austin is first, and they might be second. Or Seattle is second. Yeah. they're up there. Yeah, and and we don't have the infrastructure to support it. Um, but I think the thing that I love about Oregon, the thing I loved about growing up country is the chafing is like you can vehemently disagree with people and still come together for like dinner on Friday night. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was that it's that spirit of of disagreement, but still but neighbor- respectful. Yeah. Neighborly compassion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I think that that particularly at this era in American culture. That is so important. How do we disagree and still like love each other in an emotive and important way? Meyer Statman at Santa Clara said, he, he comes from uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, said the difference between Americans and Europeans and Israelis, in Europe they can, dis- they can have the political disagreement, but then put it aside and go to dinner. The same in Israel. In the United States, People don't want to talk about the disagreement. They'd rather not have the debate and, and and then go to dinner. If they have the debate, 
it seems hackles get raised and, and people get offended. But I, I derailed you from mentors. Were there any other mentors I want to I mean, to look, there were tons. You know, I would close out on really saying, you know, my parents were a key shaper for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my father was fond of saying that my brother and I were his chance to change the world. He's sort of like, look, I didn't go to college. I don't have this sort of b- background. You guys are it. So you need to go be who you can be. And then that was cup- – so it was a strong sense of cu- purpose coupled with a – and whatever you end up being is okay. My mom, That's great. my my mom, uh, I think only a few years ago, finally stopped trying to convince me to come a nurse. You know, here I am, I'm exited startups, done all these things, and she's like, "You'd be a great nurse. Come back to Oregon, be a nurse." I'm like, "I don't think I'm on that path, right?" They they That's part funny. of the reason, you know, I don't charge for speaking and you know take some of my income and build these pro social side projects and do all these things is because I had these parents who sort of said, "That's the stuff that matters," huh, right? That, that's really interesting. Tell us about some academics or others who influenced your approach to behavioral psychology. So, you know, look, I, I the nice thing about nice thing, the, the interesting thing about behavioral science and sort of the not modern, you know, sort of application of, of behavioral economics and some parts of, of judgment decision making. You know, we have the Kahneman and Tversky, you know, we have these these iconic figures who really have advanced the work. Um you know, Dan Ariely, uh, who I'm lucky enough to sort of count as a friend, like uh, predictably irrational was one of my favorite books. I mean, it's book. just an, and Dan was so full of insight and personal, um, just the trauma with the burn unit is yeah, just absolutely. amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's so visceral when you read it. It's like, oh, this stuff really matters. Yeah, it matters to him. And, and no, no, I, I mean, it matters to think about how we just these little changes, what it means to someone going through. The burn unit process, you could take someone in miserable pain and make their life appreciably better with a series of rational decisions. It's That's right. Shocking. You you and I, you know, I talked earlier about like why do I think chief behavioral officer is so important? And I sort of said, you know, I think it's about breaking all the rules. Everything is possible. Any out we can reach any outcome if we are willing to sort of take a step back and say every behavior is is motivatable if we are willing to pull all of the levers. And and I think what I love about Dan um, is that, you know, he was one of those people that came out of the lab and said, no, there's an application for this. You know, we, right. we talked earlier about Tom Gilovich, um, who I think Cornell, sort of, how we know it isn't so. Yeah, great guy, hot hand. You know, he's just done a bunch of amazing research. Mm-hmm. Um, he sort of presaged. I, I think he sort of. Might Way have, ahead of everybody else. And, and, and I think he sort of presaged that I was going to leave academia. I vividly remember. Um, him calling me and saying, hey, we love you at Cornell. We'd love to offer you this this interesting fellowship. We'd love for you to come. But, you know, you keep saying applied psychology and, you know, we're researchers. And, you know, if what you care about in the world is applying psychology, you might not want to come into a, a graduate program. And I think ultimately he was right. I got frustrated with just writing research papers because it wasn't moving the needle that I wanted. And and I think Tom was really right. And I wish I had had known better how to listen to him at the time about Hey, I really needed to get out of the lab, and that mm-hmm. I was never going to be able to just do that. And 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 so I think there's all these people. You know, that's one phone call from Tom Gillich, and he's given me lots of things. You know, over well the time I was at Cornell, he's a great guy. But these little moments have big ripple effects, and so mm-hmm. a lot of what what I think is important in mentorship is is creating those moments, right? Taking the 15 minutes to talk to somebody that you wouldn't normally talk to. 
as an equal in an emotionally compassionate way, not to lecture them, but to to really engage with whatever is very important to them. You know, I, I think it, the temptation of many mentors is, well, I have my shtick, I have what I believe, and I'm just going to enforce that on other people. I, I think so much of what's important about mentorship, particularly in in our, given the challenges that America faces right now, mm-hmm. is about saying, what do you want to accomplish? And then how can I help you get there? It's not about me judging your goals or saying your goals are the right goals or the wrong goals. It's me saying, whatever is important to you, I'm going to get behind helping you get there. Hmm. Quite quite interesting. Um, I only have you for another 10 or 15 minutes. Let me get to some of my favorite questions. <laughs> Tell us about failure. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, so, you know, as I sort of pointed out to you earlier, everything I build is a failure in that even when it's successful, it doesn't I recognize the thing I need to go do next, right? So Get Raised is really a reaction to Thrive. So at Thrive, for example, successful company. Uh-huh. But when I was looking at the data, so one of the components that really changed behavior there is we had a very clear, clear behavioral score. And it had subcomponents. One of the subcomponents, for example, was savings. And I didn't want rich people to get a high score and poor people to get a low score. So I said, well, we're going to do this as a, we're going to norm it against income. So basically like savings percentage was- Percentage of- Yeah, percentage of your income that you save for 90 in, days. In excess of yeah, blah, blah, blah. fixed cost. That's right. And so um, when you look at, at saving as a percentage of income, women are actually significantly better savers than men. But the, but the moment I took out the, the income- on a raw dollar basis, all of the men were doing much better at Thrive. Why? Because they were getting paid better, right? And so here I was, we built this exitable, successful thing, and I felt like an idiot because I had only looked at what happened post-paycheck. And that's really how- As opposed to relative to the dollar amount that was paid. And so that's where I sort of got the get raised idea was we only did interventions post paycheck what if we did something that directly affected your paycheck and so that's why we built get raised at the next company it was that oh i screwed it up last time get raised fantastic tool 2.3 billion dollars in raises very successful but there's many ways and things which i think i screwed it up one of the important ones is it puts the burden on the disadvantaged right it says to women hey, you live in a world that is unfair to you. You have to go do something about that. When really the onus is on men, right? Like, But you could get women to go to a site, fill out a couple of forms, yes. print it out and give it to their boss. You can't get their boss to go to a site and say, here's why you, you are sexist in your pay practices. Wait, uh, this is where I'm going to challenge you. Okay. Everything is changeable. I want to live in a Some world- Some things are more changeable than others. Yes. So there is there's certainly low-hanging fruit. That I, I am vehement agreement there's low-hanging fruit. And get fruit. raised might have been the low-hanging fruit here. Might have been the low-hanging fruit. But I think what behavioral- I think the whole point of behavioral science is to say, is to consider that as a thought question. What could I do to get a boss to be motivated to pay you fairly, right? And we're going and thinking about those things. Like, for example- I'll give you a short answer to that. Show you, you this. You, you now have a huge- move towards ESG investing, environmental sustainable governance. Yep. And companies are now being ranked on what sort of diversification they have at their highest levels, at their board, at their senior management. And it's an objective goal that, hey, you're not meeting this. What do you what's your here's a plan. Just as you could get raised, here's how to get diversified. That's right. Or whatever it is. Get, get retained, right? Right. Retention's an important like let's do economic motivators. Forget the triple bottom line. We'll use your single bottom line. If you retain women, you make more money. Mm-hmm. Period. Period. Like reduce turnover, reduce. Yeah, absolutely. Costs, reduce high everything. diversity. Like we know this. We can prove it empirically. So 
hey, if I can get you to regularly evaluate women's salaries to make sure that they are comparative so that they don't leave you, like, that's a good thing. Right? That's interesting. And we can go That's build really that. The, the next generation of tools that I'm building is actually, you know, I told you, every everything I build is a failure. Uh-huh. And then that prompts the next That's thing. That's an interesting pers- life perspective. So it's not, I'm going to change the language on you. It's not so much a failure as it is a provisional step waiting the next hypothesis. It is incomplete. Incomplete. Right? Science is perpetually incomplete. It's one of the things I love about it. And so the next set of tools that I'm building are actually focused on men. So here's where I'm going to call BS on you. Go. You said uh, you read almost exclusively fiction. fiction. Yes. And yet I go to your website, and there is Dan Arley's Predictably Irrational, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, Stumbling on Happiness by Gilbert, Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. Essentially, all of the things uh, that you recommend are explicitly... Nonfiction. Actually, if you go to the recommendation page, you will notice that there is a section for fiction. And I, I did not I'll, get that far. Uh, if you scroll down, I am recommending fiction books as well. So let's talk about some of your favorite fiction books. So so I, uh, the, it's funny, the things that I are my favorites are not necessarily things I read often, right? I sort mm-hmm. of said I read a lot of science fiction and things because um, I think it makes me a better product person. I love Blindness, Jose Saramago. Blindness. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, beautiful, sad uh, book. Uh, I love a lot of Hemingway, you know. From- what I just read The Old Man in the Sea on a flight, and yeah. I, it was just amazing. I, I come back to, you know, to reread. I'm a big rereader of fiction. So I try, because as what you, I'm. What are you reading? Uh, so so what, what I've done over the last couple of years, actually. Uh, what I've done over the last couple of years, actually, is is I'll pick an author and read everything they've written. Um, regardless of the quality. That regardless of the quality. Because there are certain authors that, hey, you should read these three books. You don't want to read those three books. That's right. But but what's interesting is even bad fiction teaches you something, right? Like So I recently I, I read through everything Stephen King had written, oh, and there's so some sorry. good stuff and some bad stuff. Some of his... his oh, some stuff is bad. So right? the, uh, let me give you an example, and I'm going to get nasty letters from people on this. And I, by the way, I know he's an immensely talented guy, Misery is just astonishing. But I remember reading The Stand, which is like 800 pages, and then suddenly it's like he put the papers down for six months and then picked it up and just pivoted in a totally different uh, direction. And I was like, oh, what a terrible thing to do to your readers. We were with you for 800 pages, and now it's like some a different ending just slapped on. Yeah. And and that was kind of the last Stephen King book I read. And so—, so- I think that the, he certainly has a range of, of books from from what I think of as probably even terrible, right, to very, very good classics or right, amazing right. literature. And, and and even better movies very often. That's right. And, and so reading the whole thing actually, like, he's been writing for so long. Right. You know, he stopped and writing. And he's so good. And I he's mean, so he's, good. You know, he's, his prose is fantastic. Yeah. His, yeah, his I, voice is unique. He's known for writing horror, but some of his non-horror stuff mm-hmm. is amazing. Some of the movies, Stand By Me, other things. Unbelievable. Like, yeah, I mean, just... That, that's, that's just a, one of... I read that book so long ago, and it was just... You forget it's Stephen King. That's right. I, I think through. Green Mile. I mean, I think there's a bunch of things that people... He's just, amazing, that right. people forget are Stephen King, but... Because the, they're because they don't get as much attention, they don't sell as much as yeah, exactly as you know all his horror stuff. That's right. Christine and, was like a it was a huge seller. That's right. And so, and I think he even talks about that sort of commerciality. And so, reading so much of somebody, 
you get to see like you know when he he got in a he got hit by a car very mm-hmm. severely almost died um, and it which is what led to misery and it just cha- it was actually I think this is far after misery he sort of presaged his own life it's sort of oh scary. really why am I thinking that uh, I think misery is long before this this is quite late in his career actually mm-hmm. um, and he stops writing for a while because it's very painful for him to write and. The stuff he produces then is dark. It's not horror. It's just dark. He mm-hmm. is clearly depressed. It is clearly bad and scary. And, uh, I mean, getting that sort of, that that long history is great. The only, I will admit that I broke my rule once, uh, which was I started reading everything Cormac McCarthy's ever written, uh-huh. and I had to stop in the middle and take a break. Because I will tell you, reading everything Cormac McCarthy's ever written with no breaks it's tough. It makes you want to kill yourself. Every book is basically like, oh, you care. He is like the he is the presage to Game of Thrones. He's like, oh, you care about this? Great, let me kill it. Like, let me like just destroy it. In What's the, the best worst. book to read from from McCormick. from Cormac McCarthy? Uh, I think All the White Horses is, is is pretty amazing. I mean, The Road is obviously amazing. You mentioned you were a sci-fi buff. Well, you haven't talked really about any sci-fi, and that's what was, I, why I sort of said like none of the sci-fi stuff really makes my favorite book list. Really? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I'm shocked. My favorite book list is very typecast. They're all very sad, um, right? Like blindness is they're just tragic, and I, I, there's something the tragedies stick with me. I guess. Really, I could give you a list of sci-fi that's as good as anything else in the and world. And it's not that I don't think I it's good. I got a book for you that I bet you've never even read. It's a, a little esoteric I love science it. fiction we'll call book. call it out so that other people read it too. I love it. Dying Inside. Have I you heard of it? I don't think so. So the premise of the book is he's um, got a fairly robust set of ESP powers. And as a kid, he discovers this and he gets to reach out and do all these things with his ability to read minds. And a shell, uh, uh, it's not Shell Silverstein, it's something, Dan Silver, the name will come to me. And as he gets older, as he goes through colleges, the ability fades and oh. he loses it. And it's a giant metaphor, of course, but it's a wonderful book. And you, of all people, would really appreciate I- I'm it. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm definitely going to recommend that. We're running out of time. i got to get to my last two questions, my favorite questions. First... You work with a lot of uh, young tech people, a lot of millennials, college students. What sort of advice would you give someone who came to you and said, hey, I'm starting my career. I'm interested in either behavioral uh, behavioral psychology or technology startups. Uh, I mean, the, the advice I always give people is you want to think in two-year chunks. I think people are very bad. Two-year chunks. Yeah, I don't. I think people are very bad That's at. That's interesting. So, so the metaphor I always use is orienteering. Are you familiar with like no. orienteering a sport? So orienteering is a weird country person sport. It's a race, but it's a race from nowhere to nowhere. So you like mm-hmm. go out in the woods. You get dropped off at point A, and they're like, "Here's a map and a compass. Get to point B." But there's no path, right? It's not like there's a course you run on, and so. A lot of what we teach people today, metaphorically, is to sort of take out the map and compass and then walk to point B, right, in the most efficient possible way. Right. And I think the right answer and the way you actually win at orienteering is to say, I know B is over there. I'm going to run in that direction until I'm no longer sure I'm going in the right direction. And then I'm going to stop and take out my map and compass, take a point, run. Do it again. Take a point, run. And I actually think careers work best this way. I know, if you look at my career, right, I've done all sorts of very different stuff. And yet, it, when you look back at it, it all sounds like a story because it's all been united by common values. I know I want to change things for large groups of people. I know that it's about empowering people at the bottom of the pyramid, not the top. And and so, because I have those values, that's my point B. And every two years, I basically look up and say, am I still honoring those values? And then I pivot based on how do I head that Fascinating. And last our, question. Our, our last question. What is it that you know about startup, venture, behavioral psychology today 
that you wish you knew 15 years or so ago when you were coming out of school? I, I will go back to what I've said a couple of times through this program. Everything is on the table. Mm-hmm. Right. The sooner you get to the place and you say, there's nothing I can't challenge. There's no rules that we can't reconfigure. Like start from the design from the world as you want it to be and then work backwards. Huh. That's quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Matt Wallert, formerly director at Microsoft Ventures and uh, a, a co-founder or CEO of a number of successful startups. If you have enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up or down a few inches on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com, and you can see any of the other 150 or so uh, such conversations that we've put together over the past three years. I would be remiss if I did not remind you that we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I must thank my head of research, Michael Batnick. Taylor Riggs is my booker producer, and Medina Parwana is my ace recording engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.